Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. What is the experience we're trying to give our customers and therefore how should we be behaving and acting? Therefore, to build on what you were just saying, you know, what are the types of things that we would write in our diary if we were that type of person and that type of human being that's delivering this type of experience to to customers? So by definition, we're talking about defining these things and being clear across the organization about these things. The big innovation I think in chatbots is letting customers use their own language to describe the problem that they're having or what they're looking for. Because oftentimes, whatever language is in your FAQ or is you know loaded in your search terms on your website, they don't actually match to what the customer is able to describe because there's a gap in terms of the words or the language that the user has versus the way that you as a business talks about these things. Corporate empathy or internal empathy or EQ, you know, emotional quotient is so much more important these days because if you don't have those things inside the company, it's unlikely to actually come out on the other end. That's one aspect of this that, like you talked about the corporates that you've worked with, probably are about risk mitigation and lowering the likelihood of them being vulnerable or susceptible to outside judgment or criticism or lawsuits. And yet it's the ways in which people make themselves available and vulnerable to critique or criticism that oftentimes reveals the most or connects the most. So I'm not sure if anybody has used hashtags in social media or elsewhere. I know I have many times. And if you think about it, it's changed the way that we communicate. And there's been many uses of it that people have used over the last period of time. So think of the Me Too movement and the Arab Spring and think how those were affected by the use of the hashtag. So it's helped change the way that we communicate. So I'm really, 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 really pleased to welcome today on the podcast, Chris Messina, the inventor of the hashtag. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We were talking before we, we started the podcast I believe there are 20 million hashtags used every day. Yeah, and I mean, that might have been like a number from 2017 or 2018. So I imagine it's only gone up. In fact, I think I'm wrong in saying that. It's not 20, it's 200 million hashtags every day. Yeah, I was going to say, you might be off by an order of magnitude. <laughs> it's all numbers, yeah. guys. We're friends. Yeah, it's know. fine. <laughs> you can't even think that high, so it's fine. Yeah. You can tell I work in finance, can't you? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you shouldn't work in finance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, as you say, it's an amazing number. And really, first of all, congratulations on it must be great to to be able to think to yourself you've had such an effect on the world and, and the way we communicate. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it certainly is humbling and also connects me to a whole lot of people that I never thought I would have ever been connected to. I'm sure. I'm sure. So let me give you a bit more of a background about Chris. Chris has spent over 15 years working in cutting-edge social technology and developer platforms. He's worked for Google and Uber and founded many startups and changed the world in many of the creations, including the, the hashtags. 
co-founded a conversational AI company, which is, is it YC18? Yeah, so or Y Combinator, yep. Right. And since then has become a bit of a digital nomad since 2019, traveling around the world, speaking on social technology, product design and founder culture and mental fitness. And in 2016, he coined the phrase conversational commerce to describe all the sort of changes that are happening in the consumer marketplace about how brands and consumers are going to be interacting with themselves through messaging and uh, social media. So the conversation we're going to have is sort of three ways. And clearly, Chris is an expert in technology, social and all that type of stuff. Ryan is an expert in consumer psychology, and I'm just the hanger on. (laughs) (laughs) I like to think of myself as uh, knowing something about customer experience. You're the muscle, Um, Colin. I'm the muscle, absolutely. You're the bruiser. Yeah. And therefore, what we're going to do is, is really have a conversation around that intersection between technology, human behavior, customer experience, and where it's all where it's all going. And and I think we could start off by just talking about this area of conversational commerce. Can you can you explain what you mean by that, Chris, in more de- detail for somebody that doesn't know? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting now, of course, you know, we're, we're towards the end of uh, the decade and the end of 2019. When I was first sort of noticing these changes and shifts, it really had to do with a bunch of apps that were coming out or services that were being built around SMS. And so, you know, of course, Twitter got its start many years ago, back in 2006, as an SMS gateway. But for the most part, what you would see on Twitter were humans, were your friends, people publishing, you know, their own updates. And then eventually you had people who took RSS feeds or news feeds and then would pipe it into Twitter, or then there'd be bots and stuff like that. But it was all kind of ham-handed, I guess. What I started to notice was that there were more services that were being launched that were using these new channels to communicate directly with their customers in a way that I never or previously never had thought brands would. And I remember very specifically one day when I tweeted some snarky comment about my experience with JetBlue. And lo and behold, JetBlue actually like mentioned me back and, and responded and then sent me a direct message. Right? And now, of course, this is not very newsworthy. But back when that first experience happened, I was like, oh my god, like there's a company, this sort of entity in the world, you know, represents many thousands of people actually talking to me as an individual. And that felt very different, qualitatively very different. And so what I noticed is that there was probably going to be this shift in terms of computing and social platforms to allow brands to behave more like humans in these channels that people had previously occupied kind of like on their own. And sure enough, as of 2016, that started to really happen with the launch of all of these bot platforms that allowed brands to no longer just publish to news feeds, you know, these kind of static pieces of content that would just show up and, and users would scroll through but instead we're actually conversational in nature. And when I was thinking about conversational commerce specifically, I was thinking about the multi-platform aspect of conversations that start in one place, which might be SMS, and then switch to email, and then switch to voice, as you do with humans, right? We're able to maintain state across all those contexts. Brands typically aren't. And I was like, what happens when a brand can actually have a continuous conversation in all these different contexts with me How would that change how I interact with them? How would that change how I think about them? How would that change the amount of business that I want to do with them? That to me is what conversational commerce is really all about. With JetBlue, was this with a bot or was this with a human or with a series of humans? So what what was that experience like for you? 
this was so this was back in the day this was actually started out with an individual so this is a customer service rep and they were empowered to have these conversations on social and you got to remember like also back then of course this is an era where brands didn't want to engage with social they were afraid of social it was like the wild wild west and they just didn't want to be made fun of or whatever so you had these very boring earlier era type of messages, sort of like ad messages or radio messages that would go out on brand social media that were just not engaging. They were inauthentic. What they would do is they would have, they would use a little carrot symbol, a little like, you know, hat, and then like the initials of the person that was actually sending me the direct message through the JetBlue account. And that's how I was able to sort of understand who was who. And I believe there was probably two or three people that were having a conversation with me at the time. Fascinating. You've said a number of things there that sort of already make me sit up one of the things that you talked about was brands behaving like humans which i think to a certain number of brands is quite a novel concept in itself in the sense of and this is a sort of one of the whole themes that we talk about on the, on this podcast which is that it's not just about the rational experience it's not just about the price or the delivery or the the rational things that businesses have been dealt with over the years it's about how do you get that human element into the experience. So I guess my question is, we're clearly starting to see the chatbots and stuff like that coming in that are mimicking human behavior. But I guess, to what extent do you believe that technology is going to be able to really mimic and interpret human behavior? Maybe a big question. Well, it is a big question. And I think the answer is in various ways, it will be able to do a really good job in pretty narrow contexts or domains. These things that already happen, for example, when you call into Apple, let's say on their customer service line, a voice like Siri will answer and will ask you what you want. And it'll actually do a pretty good job of fielding those questions, right? And that's because it's within a really restricted realm. And it's not general artificial intelligence where it has to know everything about all things or about some random comment that you're going to say about some sports team or something. It's just like within the realm of providing customer service. And so that's actually a domain that a lot of people are working on because that's a big cost center for a lot of businesses. And of course, they want to lower those costs through automation. I think the question, though, is a little bit different, or at least if you were to turn it on its head, you have to sort of ask the question, like, why are companies and brands the way that they are? How do they get to be the way that they are? And how do we want them to evolve? And it seems to me that if we are going to continue to care about the experience of the individual in society and in capitalism, then the individual is going to be managing all sorts of relationships. And then the question for a brand or a company is, well, what is the type of relationship that it wants to develop with its customers? Is it transactional? Like a cab, you, you get in the car, it takes you someplace, you get out, and that's that's it. And it's sort of like a one-off and it doesn't, you don't need to share any personal information about it. Or... Is it a brand that wants to actually embed itself in your life and so that when you're making decisions, you're actually thinking about it, whether it's uh, about fashion or about taste or food or culture, whatever, and it actually becomes an expression of you. Just like your friends are an expression of who you are, brands very much are like that, especially on social media. And so what is it that a brand or company needs to do or how does it need to evolve itself and how does it need to behave so that people can actually start to think about it in those new ways that are much deeper and much longer term and generate, I think, ultimately more value for both parties in those relationships. My personal background is working in corporate life. So I spent most of my time working in, in large corporates. The only reason I mention that to you is that part of the challenge is just getting the culture of the organization to even 
think along some of the lines that you're just talking about. So when I looked at your TED Talk, and the TED Talk was really good, the companies that you were mentioning there, one of which was, uh, I believe, Maslow, Mm -hmm. these are sort of startups. And um, I guess my question is around, how do you get the type of large corporate that you have today to start to think in the lines that you're that you just described yeah i mean obviously this is uh if not a 20 million maybe a 200 million dollar question uh, at this point <laughs> we've already established the difference is, yeah. is fine like there's, no, yeah. there's no difference yeah and if we could talk about world peace after this that would be why useful. not let colin <laughs> and speak at your next conference As you can hear, they're great communicators and can get over a message in a simple, inspiring, and humorous way. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. Well, I mean, in a way, not too ironically, I mean, world peace could actually be somewhat addressed by this type of thing because what you're talking about with corporates is like, the nitty gritty of interpersonal interactions are quite complex and are very nuanced and very subtle. And humans have developed these over the last 40, 50,000 years so that we can actually survive as a collective species. And so our language and the way that we understand each other, the way that we communicate are all predicated on a certain set of goals or outcomes, which is about survival of the the most sort of fit within, a again, a collective context. And corporations obviously also exist within a similar paradigm of competition, but they don't have the same sense of either moral obligation or collective obligation. And so if a brand wants to act as though it does, or it wants to act as a way that you know people think it's cool or it's fun or it's hip or it behaves in a certain way, obviously that has to start from the inside and then emanate outwards, right? Which is why I think corporate empathy or internal empathy or EQ, you know, emotional quotient is so much more important these days because if you don't have those things inside the company, it's unlikely to actually come out on the other end. That's one aspect of this that, like you talked about the corporates that you've worked with, probably are about risk mitigation and lowering the likelihood of them being vulnerable or susceptible to outside judgment or criticism or lawsuits. And yet it's the ways in which people make themselves available and vulnerable to critique or criticism that oftentimes reveals the most or connects the most. So how do you find a way of actually engaging in those types of behaviors while also keeping both parties safe? This comes to a point that I was asking myself as you were talking about like how brands can exist in this space. I imagine that one of the major hurdles is sincerity or, or perceived sincerity. As we're recording this just a few days ago, Netflix encouraged brands to come up with something that they could use both to promote their brand on Twitter and that could also be said during sex. And it was it was very funny. Lots of brands participated. My own reaction to this was for some of these brands, it, it felt very on brand and on message. And for others, it felt really inappropriate and stilted and, <laughs> and not just because of the, uh, yeah, the nature of the comment they were making. Well, there are some brands that you probably would never want to have sex with. You know, to be honest, it's a small list for me, but everyone <laughs> has their own boundaries and limits that they're comfortable with. Kind of the naturalness of that form of communication. What insights do you have or, or what advice do you have about brands who are trying to become more conversational, become more intimate, become more relationship-driven, whereas it can be very off-putting for some consumers when brands even try. I mean, that's such a great example, 
obviously like Netflix sort of plays in the space of being about entertainment and about being about fun and people go to it to sort of zone out or just get entertained. And so it sort of makes sense that if Netflix is like the fun person at the party that, you know, cracks these jokes or makes these funny statements, that bringing that to Twitter is a natural extension of that brand. Whereas, as you say, you have maybe a brand that's like, you know, the nerdy guy that doesn't really like know how to talk to people, you know, shows up and says something totally that doesn't make any sense. And everyone kind of looks like, look, looks at him like sideways, like, like what? is the type of experience I think that you're describing. And so what I find is very interesting, and I know like this doesn't need to get into like a therapy session or something, but clearly there's quite a bit of, I think, work of humanizing the individuals who are participating in these types of conversations for them to one, dig into themselves, to understand like what's going on with them, to understand how they show up in the world, to see how other people perceive them, and then to really ask questions about themselves, to get curious about themselves in order to be able to participate effectively in those conversations like what is really going on what's the subtext here what's the context like what are the conversations that netflix is is already a part of or is already driving and if i just jump in sort of randomly into this conversation is it as though again i showed up at a dinner party and i wasn't invited and i just sort of butt in and said something completely as a non sequitur and everyone was wondering like why that was right like these are very human moments and I think they apply to brands too. So again, there's that question that you're asking yourself, like what is motivating me to get involved in this? Am I just doing this because it's a popularity contest or am I actually expressing something or saying something that I would say anyways, even if there wasn't this prompt and it comes from a place of truly understanding what I am and how I represent myself to the world. And I'm saying that of course, as, as a brand. Yeah. Yeah. When you say I am, you're talking about the brand. It sounds like you're, you're almost recommending brand therapy that these brand managers need to to know the brands as they would know themselves and kind of understand that personality at almost kind of a deeper level. Yeah, I mean, as frankly as this might sound, if you were like building a brand, it's almost like, you know, if the brand had a diary, what would its inner thoughts be? What is its inner dialogue? And then if it does say something or if it does write a blog post, how is it collecting a bunch of those thoughts into something that's more coherent when it finally gets out there to like a public audience or to the stage? I I love that. I love that idea. Yeah, I mean, and for me, this goes back to going to understand what the organization is trying to to do and what the experience is that they're trying to deliver to the customer. So one of the questions that we often ask organizations is, what's the experience that you're trying to give to your customers? And most organizations can't answer that. So, you know, if I take this back full circle to one of the things that you said earlier, Chris, which was, brands need to behave like human beings. Well, yeah, I totally agree with that. But clearly, there are different human beings. And every human being is different in the way that they approach things. And that's all part of the conversation that we're having. So for me, it's about you have to be clear about what it means to be the whatever type of human being you're trying to do, or to put it in more basic words, what is the experience we're trying to give our customers and therefore how should we be behaving and acting? Therefore, to build on what you were just saying, you know, what are the types of things that we would write in our diary if we were that type of person and that type of human being that's delivering this type of experience to, to customers? So by definition, it, we're talking about defining these things and being clear across the organization about these things. And in startups, and you know, I've obviously done a startup with Beyond Philosophy, but you've done far more than I have. In startup, it's, it's easy because you've got a few people, basically. When you get to organizations, large corporates, that communication becomes 
the communications of what they are trying to do and how they're trying to do it and what experience they're trying to deliver becomes much more difficult. And feel free to disagree with anything I've just said there, but does that sort of paint a different picture, a same picture or what? No, I think I think that's I think that's right. I mean, there's there's a reason why there has become kind of like this cult of the entrepreneur, you know, certainly in Silicon Valley and in America and elsewhere in the last decade or so, because in many ways, a lot of these founders, whether it's like a Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk or Zuckerberg and, and those folks, their organizations are very much a representation of people who they are. And in some ways, if you are an employee of those companies, you can almost imagine like, you know, what would Zuck do or what would Elon do? How would he say this? Elon's tweet streams are very much kind of a representation of like Tesla's culture. If you can embody what your company is about or who represents your, your company, if you come up with like a persona and you develop that, right, and you collectively share that, you think about, you know, how would they respond to this? How would they respond to that? And you kind of have like, not necessarily a set of litmus tests, but a set of principles that might actually help give you some insight. You know, is the response typically more curt and abrupt and kind of get to the point, which might make sense. Let's say if you're like in, I don't know, I want to say like Home Depot or something, it's kind of like, you know, you're getting in to get a job done. You want to be fast, you know, Amazon sort of similarly, or are you more kind of about talking about options and colors and experience? And that's more like on, on the fashion side of things, right? So I guess I feel like it's, 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 it is kind of about envisioning like, a real human, like a person that personifies these things. And that, that of course, can come down to content strategy, to brand strategy, and all those different things. And I think it really comes to the fore when you're thinking about, you know, you mentioned chatbots. A lot of the early interesting experiments in the chatbot world that I thought were pretty effective were much more narrative-driven. Effective, like, you know, you can do sort of customer service, which can be efficient, and you can allow... The, the, the big innovation, I think, in chatbots is letting customers use their own language to describe the problem that they're having or what they're looking for. Because oftentimes, whatever language is in your FAQ or is you know loaded in your search terms on your website, they don't actually match to what the customer is able to describe because there's a gap in terms of the words or the language that the user has versus the way that you as a business talks about these things. Conversation is simply a channel through which meaning is constructed in this back and forth exchange of little bites of sense. And eventually you say, mm-hmm, oh, uh-huh, or oh, I don't understand. And what we're doing is we're basically having a, a dialogue to arrive at some shared understanding. But you can't do that with a web page. You can't do that with a blog post, right? It's not interactive. So in those contexts where you have conversational interfaces, that's where you do want to allow this back and forth to happen. And that's where the character or the values you know, kind of come forth. Because it could be the, the case where the customer service agent actually asks, like, how are you today? Like, what's going on? So, Chris, thanks very much for this. If anybody wants to get hold of you, Chris, how should they get hold of you? You know, I'm pretty easy to find um, on Twitter. I'm uh, at Chris Messina. On Instagram, I'm at Chris. And um, I have a website, chrismessina.me. So this has been such a great conversation. And to be totally honest with you, we went on talking with Chris for so long that we decided that we would split this podcast into two. And therefore, we're going to be stopping this podcast here at the moment. But I really hope you can join us for the next podcast because we're carrying on our conversation with Chris and we're going to be talking about how brands should behave more like humans how we can do that, how we can use technology to do that, how technology needs to be humanized 
and many, many, many other things. So that's going to be in the next podcast, which will be up shortly. So we really hope you dial in to part two of the show to continue listening to a fascinating conversation with Chris. Thanks very much. This has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.